Super. Uh, good morning to, to everyone. I, I like to wander. You guys don't mind, do you? You know that. I don't like to stay in one place. I may need some assistance on this. Thank you. I want to bring you our greetings from our, our family in Atlanta. Uh, I want to bring you, I, I, and my son, who's up here from Gainesville, uh, and uh, it's good to be with my mom again. Greetings from the North River Church of Christ, for sure, and from Guy Burnt, who I spoke to, uh, he phoned just a few days ago. He said he was on the plains uh, watching a herd of buffalo, which, uh, that's Guy, driving across, across the nation. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Look forward to our next time playing Frisbee, too. That'll be great. I do want to thank the Jacksonville Church family for being so warm and, and kind and, and many of the things that were said in the class in the auditorium before and even in the last few minutes. I agree with them. They resonate with me. I think of uh, just the support I received as a young Christian coming to this church family in the 70s. And some of you remember, I'm thinking of Phil Little uh, among others, Doug Pullen, quite a few others. In the 80s, your support, the time I, I was living in Europe and really trying to make a difference internationally, the 90s, the time of just traveling all over the world, the 2000s, uh, not the millennium, the, the decade, whatever you call it, just the, the years of being more supporting myself, a little bit apart from the church, I found the warmth and uh, support of the Jacksonville family to be commendable, just fantastic. And I want to say that before I begin preaching. Happy New Year, of course. Uh, you know, things don't always go as planned when it comes to New Year's. How many of you, I'm curious, were watching television when the moment came? I mean, some of you, <laughs> I'll confess, there have been a good few New Year's where I've, I've not been watching anything except the inside of my own eyelids, but this year we stayed up. <laughs> Things didn't go quite well as planned. The, the announcer was doing the countdown. 14, 12, 10, 9, 11. He wasn't doing well. Seven, six, five, four, three, and then our television went off. And it said, parental control blocked, enter code to unlock. Because <laughs> we had that on the TV, so. And it was apparently three seconds out of sync. Despite our best hopes, plans, and intentions, things don't always work right. So we were, uh, it was a bit of an anticlimax. My wife and I were just laughing. Then this morning, I'm getting dressed, and I realize that the trousers I'm trying to get into are not my trousers. <laughs> I'm a 36-36. It, it, this, I mean, this is this morning. This is like 8 o'clock this morning. It's not like I can go out and buy a replacement. It's, so I actually got into it. I pulled them down to just as low as they go. <laughs> but just so you know, these are 36-30s. Now this is comfortable, and I could stand, some of you are wondering about my dress sense. If you know me well, you know I don't have much to start with, but this is the Apostle Paul, I will boast of things that show my weakness. You say, you must have put on weight this year. No, that, no, I actually lost a bit this last year. I'm going to pull them down now so you don't stare at me and make me self-conscious. You know how my self-esteem gets bruised. Okay. And that, even that's just a compromise at best. Whew. There is still hope. There's always a new beginning. And I like John's gospel because it's 
all about new beginnings. Chapter 1, the disciples meet Jesus. It's a new relationship. You know, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. They spend the day with him. Chapter 2, the new wine, the more hopeful, cleansed version of the temple, just the new start. In chapter 3, as Jesus explains, we have to be born again, and it's possible. Chapter 4, as he breathes hope into the deflated woman of Samaria, a new beginning. Chapter 5, where we'll find our man, the one we're going to look at today. Chapter 6, and many more. I also find it striking how many of these chapters in John that give us hope, that talk about new beginnings, that talk about transformation, involve water. Water. Chapter 1, for example, we see baptism. We see Jesus' baptism as the Spirit comes down upon him, marking the beginning of what we call his public ministry. New Beginnings, chapter 2, where Jesus changes water to wine, real wine, not grape juice. Chapter 3, the new birth of, of water and the Spirit. Chapter 4, where Jesus tells that woman that, what does he say? I'll give you living water. Chapter 5, where the man is hoping to be transformed by getting into the water. Chapter 6, another miracle where Jesus walks on the water. Chapter 7, where he says, if someone believes in me, streams or rivers of water, living water, will flow out of him. Can you think of other chapters in John that connect water with transformation? Well, sure, washing the feet in, in chapter 13 at the Last Supper. Chapter 21, the miraculous catch of fish. I, I think of chapter 9, the blind man who goes to the pool of Siloam. And he's told to wash, and as he does, he gets his sight back. We're just going to be looking at the beginning of John 5 today. And if you would follow along, I'd appreciate it. I'll be reading in the TNIV. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. That's pretty vague. But now we're going to get more specific. I'm in John chapter 5, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Let's try to re imagine some of this scene. It's a busy time. Well, it's actually a holiday time. And you know how traffic is affected. I mean, just the thing like traffic is affected. The traffic in Jerusalem multiplied many times over. It wasn't just like it went up 10%, which is enough to paralyze many cities. It's busy. The setting, it's near the northeast corner of the temple. It says the Sheep Gate. Why is it called the Sheep Gate? Because that's where these cute, innocent sheep were brought in before they slit their necks and sacrificed them for sins, right? I mean, it's just right by the temple. This is, they do business. And up there, didn't mean to disturb you. If anyone here is under age 12, please forgive me. I'll make it up to you later. Um, there's a, a pool, actually a, a, a number of pools, and they're covered. They're called Bethesda. Actually, I've, I've seen them. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've probably seen them too. They're deep. They're not filled with water anymore, but they've been excavated. I mean, this is a real place. 
as normally we expect when we open up the Bible, we're talking about real people in real place. This is, this is true. Imagine the scene. And this man we'll look at is lying amidst a huge number of people, I think many of whom have, have given up hope or at least they've adapted with, let's say, altered expectations. Now, we read about him in verse 5 where it says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years is a long time not to have hope, if indeed he was without hope all that time. A few weeks ago, I was in Korea. I saw something in the paper that just astounded me. Um, a woman, Cha uh, Sasun was her name. Yes, that's Korean. Couldn't pass her driving test. Well, she passed, I think she passed the road test just fine. She just couldn't do the written test. I don't know why. She's 68 years old, and she finally passed. But why was this in the paper? And everyone in Korea knows this, because she took the written driver's test 950 times before she passed. <laughs> Talk about not giving up. Jasa Sun. 950 times. Well, they, okay, that, that seems to, to register somehow. Maybe there are things that you've tried over and over, and you've pretty much said, won't be in this lifetime, honey. <laughs> then Jesus comes. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, yeah, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And just pause there for a moment. Jesus asked him that question, do you want to get well? He says, well, other people get there in front of me. What's he talking about? Apparently, in the Middle Ages... Someone who knew the situation wrote in the margin what became verse 4 in some Bibles. It's not in yours, probably. It said that from time to time an angel would come and stir the water. In other words, the men and women who were disabled would go down into the water once they thought the spirit, the breath, the wind of God had, had moved the waters, and they'd have hope they'd go in the water for the sake of a healing. It doesn't say it actually worked. But that's what's going on, the mysterious missing verse, five, verse 4. And Jesus comes and asks him this question, do you want to get well? And we wonder, is he making excuses or not? Is he making excuses? Because he says, well, doesn't say yes. He says, someone else gets there in front of me. You see that? Jesus asks him if he wants to change. Then verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Jesus asked this man if he really wants the transformation, which is possible. I've heard arguments on both sides. Of course he wanted to change. He was just deflated, just needed a Pat on the back and some encouragement. I've heard other 
equally persuasive arguments that he had somehow become dependent on the system and didn't really want to change. You could argue it either way. I don't really think it matters so much in the end, though I have my opinion, and you probably do too. But the fact that it's left a bit unclear means it can speak to you and me. It speaks to our heart, because it, it leaves us with the question. I mean, while we're there questioning his motives, yeah, does he really want to change or not? <laughs> it's like when you point the finger, you know, one finger going there, three fingers pointing back at you. The Bible has so many texts like this where we start wondering, we slow down, which we need to do, and we ask the question, and then we're really, we're the ones who should be answering that question. It applies so well to me, it applies so well, I think, to all of us, especially this time of year when we're tempted to make or not to make resolutions. Some of us have been through a lot of New Year's. It reminds me of a line from a famous uh, Persian poem, repentance, repentance oft, often, oft I swore before, but was I sober when I swore? Repentance oft I swore before, but was I sober when I swore? What, what was I thinking when I said that? What was I thinking when I made that commitment, that resolution? Was I in my right mind? Do I? Did I? Really want to change. What questions might the Lord ask me if he came and saw where I'm lying? Maybe not where you're physically lying, but spiritually speaking. Here's some things I thought of. First, the very first thing I thought of, what Jesus might ask, do you want to get out of bed? How about this? Do you understand that you have a reason for getting up in the morning? You've got an excellent reason. Do you get that or not? I, by the way, I, don't, I, don't, I think a lot of Christians don't get that. They, they really don't understand. Do you want to overcome that sin that's been dogging you? Sure. The question is, do you want to get well? Do you want to overcome? Do you want to take the good news to others? Hmm. Do you want to consecrate your entire life to me? God has the right to ask that question. Do I want to give him my desires, my affection, my, 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 my energy, my heart, my will, my intellect? Do I want to consecrate my plans, my money, my new year? Do I want to? Do you want your life to make a difference? Do you want to touch others? in a way that will have eternal impact. I'm sure you can think of some more questions and tailor it even more to your own heart. But Jesus asks that man, do you want to get well? And I feel that he's asking me and all of us, and this is why it's in the Bible, not to just read it and comment on the mysterious vanishing verse 4. No, to take to heart, verse 6, which cuts to the heart, it cuts to the quick. It's a decision, 
Let me read again. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. That's the decision. Now, God will help. God, God does something. Jesus does something. But the guy has to get up. Whoever said you don't have to do anything, just let God do it all, was only partly right and quite wrong as well. What might we resolve to do? We might resolve to really study our scriptures. We might resolve to buy some new trousers. <laughs> I'm going to change into my jeans after this message. We might resolve to, to, to memorize some scriptures. That's actually what our family, even our kids, were all doing over Christmas. We were working on scripture memory. Fun. We might resolve to pray, to change our habits. I'm not going to tell you when and where and how long. But having good habits is vital if we're going to really experience a great relationship with God. Resolving to meet neighbors. To meet that new family who just moved in. People move a lot. Has someone just recently moved in your neighborhood? We had one just about four or five days ago. I thought, well, I don't, I'm not sure anyone's going to walk over and say hello to them. So I, I, I walk over there. Said hello, introduced myself. Oh, that's so meritorious, isn't it? Such a bold thing to do. I hope that's not how we define bold. <laughs> Saying hello to neighbors, you know, welcoming them to the neighborhood. How about being really involved in a group Bible study in your neighborhood? Or starting one. Starting one up. We started one last year. Actually, we had an event uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, an English Christmas tea, because my wife is British. I'm an American, of course. We had an English Christmas tea with different kinds of tea and desserts, and, and, uh, and we had, we had a mincemeat pie, we had crumpets. The Americans are walking and saying, is that a scone? No, that's a crumpet. You know, it was educational as well. We had almost 40 people there, friends, neighbors, a few people from the church, but they were totally outnumbered, which is the way it should be, right? Amen. <laughs> Why not making a decision to make a difference where we live? at work. How about setting a limit to TV viewing? I, I'm not saying you have to put on a lock so, you know, at 10 o'clock it just turn, turns off. But you know, it's not a terrible idea to set a maximum, I will watch no more than this much, or no more than this many hours a week online, which I think would bring a, a, a terrific improvement to the spiritual life of about 90% of the people I know. Notice I'm not telling you, I'm just making a suggestion. How about a resolution to start encouraging people to live in other nations, Christians in other countries? Well, how would I do that? Well, you could give to them, you could pray for them, you could email them, because a lot of people, even in the poor countries, have email addresses, believe it or not. resolutions. Here's one more. Walk up to a stranger or you're sitting next to someone. You can't, don't do this in February or March. It gets too, but it's January. So happy new year because people are saying that right now, right? Say, oh, have you made any resolutions? If you say it with a smile and not too sternly, I think people might engage in a conversation. <laughs> then you can ask, so uh, have you written them down? Because, you know, if they're never written down, they're probably not going to happen. Who have you told? Have you started? How's it going? 
just an entrance to a conversation. The point is, in the end, we're the ones who have to make a decision. Jesus tells the man, get up, take up your mat and go. And he does. And he's healed, he's transformed. Failing to follow Jesus' words has significant consequences. And even then, as, as we know in this story, we still have to stay on the straight and narrow. He tells the guy, well, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So it's not just, oh, I got to have my encounter with Jesus and everything's great now. Well, everything is great now, but you better stay sober. The Bible, in fact, is full of challenges to get up, even literally to get up. I know some of you are thinking of that. Yeah, my get up and go, got up and went. Well, maybe you need to go through your concordance and, and just look at the passages about getting up. Here's what I thought of. I didn't use a concordance, but here we go. Parallels even to John 5. I thought of Aeneas. He's the man in Acts 9. And what happens? He's been lying there for a long time. The apostle Peter comes and says, get up and roll up your mat. The other people in the Gospels were told, get up. People who are, are invalids in one way or another. Sometimes the dead are told to get up. Later in Acts 9, after the thing with Aeneas, there's a woman named Tabitha. And Peter tells her, get up. Which is quite an amazing thing to say to someone who's actually dead. And she gets up. I thought of Jesus interrupting the funeral. In Luke 7, the widow of Nain, this is her deceased son. She's a widow. She's lost her son. Jesus halts the, the funeral procession and tells the young man, get up. Whew. The Bible tells to get up. Some of us who've seen better days spiritually, of course, there's the sluggard in Proverbs 6, 9. <laughs> when will you get up? <laughs> get up. Get out of bed. Jeremiah 8 talks about the person who's walking on the road and just falls down. Will he not get up? If you sin, don't you get up or you just lie there? Luke 22, Jesus speaks to the disciples in the garden. He says, get up and pray so you won't fall into temptation. You say, oh, well, I fell into temptation. Was that before or after you got up and prayed? Oh, there was actually no connection because exactly. Exactly. The Bible tells those who know what it is to become a Christian to get up. I think of Paul, the future apostle in Acts 22. Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. And if you're in that position, you know what the scriptures teach. It may be your day. It may be your time to get up and have your sins washed away. To the discouraged, God tells Elijah, the discouraged prophet, and he's so powerful, he's up here, then he goes way down there. And he's in the dumps. He's depressed. And twice in 1 Kings 19, he's told, get up and eat something. You know, sometimes when you don't eat, your blood sugar level falls down, and you start feeling all sad, but it's really, you just need to eat. Well, he needed more than just eating. But he's told to get up. And then I thought of one more, and that's Gideon. Gideon, who seems discouraged despite his great considerable talents. This is in Judges 7. He's threshing his wheat in an out-of-the-way place so the Midianites won't see him, so he won't be discovered by his enemies. And 
he's confronted in chapter 6. Then in chapter 7, he's told, get up and go down against the camp of the Midianites. Get up. And you know, he finally does. And a few verses later, he rallies the troops, and he uses again the same words. He says, get up. And they go down and have a great victory. Once he gets up, he has confidence to tell other people to get up. He has then some credibility, too. It's hard to say, okay, everyone, get happy. Be happy. I mean, you're not happy. That's going to be a little, that's a hard instruction to fo- follow, a hard swill to, a swill to follow, a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> yes, things that show my weakness indeed. When we get up, we have energy. When we get up, we have more influence. When we get up, then the Lord will move in our lives. Do we want to get well? That's the question. Then there's the command, get up. Get up. 